0: again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Hey everybody. There's some big and necessary shifts happening in the yarn world over on Instagram and, you know, talking about it on Instagram, but it's happening everywhere. People of color are speaking out about their marginalization from the community and sharing their experiences. A lot of people are doing some really emotionally heavy work to bring this to the forefront. And I urge you to go read their experiences with an open heart. As a white woman, it's easy to see these necessary conversations as attacks. They are not. They are people from our community calling for justice and for an equal voice. I hope that we can all grow this community into the welcoming and loving space that it was always meant to be. I've been actively working to make this podcast more diverse and to hear voices that otherwise might not be heard. In the first season, I mostly talked to my friends and people that I knew. It was easier than talking to strangers. In this season, though, I've gone out of my comfort zone. I've cold-called people. I've asked strangers for recommendations. It's a little scary to hunt down a stranger and make them schedule a time to talk to you while you sit on the floor of your closet. There's a lot of imposter syndrome. But hearing from people that you wouldn't normally hear from is important. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. The only way to expand our understanding and our minds is to stretch them. You're less likely to hate someone when you know their story. This is why I'm sharing these stories. So today, we're going to talk to Cheryl Colander. She is an artist working primarily with silk, and she's raising her own silk in Portland, Oregon. She imports and sells all of the necessary bits to raise your own silk caterpillars and naturally dye the resultant fibers on her site, aurorasilk.com. Hi, Cheryl. Hey, how are you doing? Pretty good. So I'd like to talk to you today about sericulture or the raising of silk. Yes, okay. Can you walk us through the life cycle of a silk caterpillar? A common mistake is to call silk caterpillars silkworms. They have legs, so they are caterpillars. Worms don't have legs. So I'll be using the term silk caterpillar throughout.
1: Well, um, the the domestic uh, silk caterpillar starts as eggs Mm-hmm. Uh, which are held in hibernation in the fridge for about eight to nine months. Okay. When I'm ready to raise the silk in the spring, when the mulberry leaves are an inch long, I bring uh, 200 or 400 eggs out of the fridge, put them in a little bowl, and they hatch in about two weeks. Okay. Then they are fed the tiniest, most delicate leaves, and they eat and eat and eat, and then they fed big, bigger leaves, and they eat and eat and eat, and finally they're fed full, mature leaves, and they eat and eat and eat, and then they make their cocoon, and that can go four weeks, usually, sometimes five, depends on the temperature. Well, then they make their cocoon. Mm -hmm. So I spin their cocoon, usually in a corner of the box, and that takes a couple days, It's laid down in layers. Mm -hmm. Then they're inside the cocoon where they go through this amazing transformation from the caterpillar to the moth. Yeah. And then they emerge from the cocoon at the end of about two weeks as a moth, very small, about an inch long. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't fly, although the males can flutter. The males find the females immediately. They mate. They stay together about a day, separate. The female lays eggs, 100 to 200 eggs,
0: and then they all uh, live about another week and die. So um, I didn't realize that they couldn't fly. Domesticated silkworms have very fat
1: bodies and very small wings.
0: Mm. The males
1: can flutter around, especially if they get excited about looking for a female, but they don't really fly, and the females do not fly at all. They just sit there waiting for a male
0: Mm. to come and impregnate them so that they can lay their eggs and they will be fertile. That's really interesting. I also didn't realize that you can hibernate the eggs. <laughs> Must. Yeah, I imagine the- yeah, if you So do they will if if left completely to their own devices, will the eggs that were just laid like hatch on their own or do they need to be hibernated?
1: Um my experience is that in our climate where it gets cool, mhm uh, they will just sit around, and then, in the spring, when the light starts up, usually around February, they will hatch okay. and Of course, in our climate,
0: that is too early because the mulberry doesn 't come out till April or may yeah, that makes sense so they're they're light dependent and and temperature dependent very much they're de- very temperature dependent that's interesting uh, so let 's talk about mulberry for a second. Mulberries are are a tree that uh, that actually grows basically everywhere. <laughs> there's, like, you can grow it anywhere. I know there's, there's one just down the street from me, actually. And mulberry produces these little fruits that are great, but the silkworms eat the leaves. Okay. Did they evolve together? Did the silkworms live on the mulberry trees? And, you know, because it seems like they're very integrally tied.
1: One must assume so. Uh, Nancy Simpson, who developed the strain that I have by collecting strains... From all over the world Did locate the progenitor Of a wild mori Living in Mongolia oh, wow. On Mulberry Creek M- Morus Alba Tartarica
0: mm-hmm.
1: And uh, of course it's very little known And everyone else No one else Until she did this Believed there was still A wild progenitor But she found it It looks basically Like the domestic one mm-hmm. But it's able to live out In the wild They make their cocoons in. And by curling a leaf around them.
0: Oh, wow. So that
1: they them not just
0: in the cocoon, but also by the leaf curled around them. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Let's talk for a second about about different strains of of silk caterpillars. So there are wild and domestic. So that's one division. And then silk can either be naturally white or a pale yellow. So what's causing the variations in the coloring? The wild silk can range from white to dark brown. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, There are
1: hundreds, or there were hundreds of species. Many were extincted or near-extincted by the DDT spraying in the tropics in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm. But uh, I find as much of the wild silk as I can... Since, as an artist, it's wonderful, um, thicker fiber, mm-hmm. and thus more durable. Yeah. And the colors that I do as a professional natural dyer, and that is my primary art after weaving, is different. The colors are different on the wild silk.
0: Yeah, it's the same with wool, mm-hmm. with over-dyeing over particular colors. You get a completely different palette when you've got a, yeah. a base color that's different. Correct. Now, for the domestic,
1: Bombyx Mori, there are different colors in the silk gum. Mm-hmm. The silk cocoon contains two different proteins. The fibroin, which is the fiber, and it is always white. Always. Okay. And then the sericin, which is the gum, the sticky part that makes raw, true raw silk stiff, mm-hmm. makes the cocoon stiff. That can be white, yellow, golden, and mm-hmm. almost a light red. Plus, under black light, it can glow fluorescent green, fluorescent yellow, or fluorescent
0: bright red. That part amazes me. So you've sent me some pictures that I'll put up in the show notes for everyone to see. They're really, really cool. The natural fluorescing under black light is amazing. Mm
1: -hmm. And this is different than the gene splicing activity that's been going on for some years in China. This is not gene splice. This is natural. This strain was collected by Nancy Simpson oh, 50 years ago from all the strains that she could find all over the world, mm-hmm. so that my strain is the most genetically diverse of any in the world. And that particular property of natural fluorescence is one that I discovered just because I was checking it out. Yeah. And there it is. Wow. That's
0: amazing. Gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> So the most common and the most commercial method of producing silk stops the chrysalid's development after it has spun the cocoon but before it hatches into a moth. So this means that you can they can unravel a single thread of silk from each cocoon after they've dissolved the gum, but your silk that you raise is called peace silk and you make it differently. Can you tell me about your process?
1: I was the one who coined the term peace
0: silk. Yeah. Make that very clear. Oh
1: yeah. It's About you. 30 years ago I said this is ridiculous it is not necessary to kill these not necessary to kill these animals yeah. to make silk so to prove it I did it my way mm-hmm. I always let the moths come out and then the cocoon is degummed that is boiled in soap so that the sericin is removed mm-hmm. and the beautiful white fiber is simply pulled out and spun it's yep. a very old technique it's the first technique for using silk yeah. And in Japan, this quality of silk is considered far more valuable. Yeah, far more valuable than the reeled silk. Mm-hmm. Also, for reeling the silk to take that continuous filament, it's perfectly possible to reel piece silk. Ah, the, good. The breeder cocoons in Central Asia, which are not sold, uh, they're not. They cannot be reeled by machine. But they can be reeled by hand ah, I see. on a small, a small foot-powered reel mm-hmm. that just goes at a slow pace yeah. while the operator observes what's going on. Okay. The, the threads are not cut when the moth pushes out; they're oh. just stripped of a bit of their saracen, and so they become a bit weaker. Okay. So as and long as all.
0: it's a slower process and the person reeling it is paying attention, because it's slower, they can they can catch the thin spots and fix it.
1: Well, it, the thin spots don't
0: matter because there isn't the kind of of pull on it that a machine reeling I operation. See. gets. Okay, that makes sense. So the tension the tension is lessened, so it doesn't break the thin spots like the commercial yes. reeling would. Correct. Okay, that's great. You have also mentioned that you're doing work with silk for medical purposes. Can you tell me about those uses? Well, my best cocoons, which are called medical grade, Mm
1: -hmm. are very large, very thick, and uh, very clean. Yeah, are bought by research institutions all over the world. Yeah, they they are not going to tell me what they're doing with it because (laughs) it's proprietary. Yeah, they are all looking for some type of patentable something. One did tell me one thing that they do is dissolve the silk, let it reconstitute in order to observe, as she put it, the crystal building process with the goal of creating an artificial substitute, and I'm okay. not happy about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. You're very much an advocate for the silk industries, for it being sustainable. And-
1: All aspects of silk raising mulberry production, every aspect, even the silk poop is a product. Yeah. Silk is not sustainable. Silk is beneficial. Yeah. Your Listerine, the green chlorophyll in your Listerine comes from silkworm poop.
0: Huh. Didn't know that either. Yeah. It's you so know, interesting. That's
1: a new factor that only a 7-year-old boy would Meh. think was wonderful.
0: No, I think those things are fascinating. <laughs> but it's it's really interesting to think about the intricacies and the like interwoven nature of human existence with silk. You know, like we've been doing this so long, like breeding silk and, you know, raising silk caterpillars and all sorts of things. Like it's been so integral with human history that there's so much that I don't think we're paying attention to. (laughs) that We don't even know anymore. You know, it's it's crazy. Well, one thing that's important to understand
1: is that silk could go extinct in one year. The eggs are only viable for one year. Mm -hmm. The entire race of silk could go extinct in one year and it did happen in Europe. Pasteur's first work was discovering the microbe that caused the complete destruction of the silk raising
0: industry in Europe at that time. Mm. Let's talk for a second about Louis Pasteur. You know his name because of his work on germ theory and figuring out that it was microorganisms that made us sick instead of bad smells and demons. And the process that he came up with to heat milk and wine to a particular temperature that would kill those microorganisms is called pasteurization. But the first time a microorganism was discovered to be the source of the disease was in silkworms. There was a fungus that was growing on silkworms and would be passed down to future generations. It turned out to be Boveria bassiana, named for Agostino Bassi, a father of germ theory. Pasteur traveled to southern France to work on this germ theory and help solve the problem that was killing so many silkworms. That's what Cheryl's talking about.
1: How oh, and then on the other hand, uh, raising silk and reeling the silk leaves you with the, the side product of the chrysalids and guess what? They are fantastic food supplement. Yeah. Without any question, the peasantry of China was as healthy and productive
0: as it has always been because they ate the silk chrysalids. Yeah, they were they were producing the silk, you know, as a product to sell, but then they did, could also eat the the chrysalids and they're full of nutrition.
1: Yes, they are. If you want to try it,
0: uh dried, toasted, crumbled and put on rice. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And they taste like shrimp? Well, and they're they're a source of protein. So like protein and carbs mm-hmm. together always make, you know, a good like balanced meal. So Protein and carbs. The Mm -hmm. rice is the carbs in the silkworm or silk silk caterpillar. The silk caterpillars themselves are 30% digestible
1: protein, and they are required nutrition for captive breeding of endangered species, chameleons and lizards. Interesting. And they are also fantastic chicken food. The eggs have been producing
0: yolks that taste like salmon. They are so wow. rich. Wow, that's wonderful. So silk, you can. I want to advocate here for a minute for people raising their own small silk crops and doing it in a in a nice, like healthy, kind way. So, silkworms, you told me, need to be raised like in a box. They need to be raised protected. So uh,
1: silk. Caterpillars, as we just said, are food for everything. Everything. (laughs) Ants, cockroaches, mice, birds, everything. Now, my cats don't eat caterpillars, thank goodness. (laughs) But um, really, they must be raised uh, in a protected environment, a warm Mm -hmm. environment. I raise mine in my home. on on trays where the legs of the trays are in water so ants cannot climb up. I don't have cockroaches or rats dropping from the ceiling.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank God for that. In,
1: yeah. yeah. In the uh, first, first commercial dedicated pea silk farm ever in the world, in Java, the first crop, um, my partner built a metal cage for them. Mm-hmm. So not only are the legs in water, but it's all screened. That's so that rats and and birds and other animals can't come in and eat the eat the caterpillars,
0: mm-hmm. and uh, they've done wonderfully. So all you would need to raise your own crop of silk caterpillars would be to have access to mulberry.
1: Yes, and mulberry grows all over the United States, yep. wild in the east, mm-hmm. planted in the west, and any kind of mulberry will do. The only mulberry that didn't work well for me was an ornamental weeping mulberry oh. that had very thick leaves with lots of hairs on them and a shiny coat, and the worms could not
0: get eat through,
1: through yeah. the the coating and the hairs. That makes sense. But the black mulberry, the white mulberry, and the red mulberry. Plus, you can buy lovely mulberry, fruiting mulberries uh, from nurseries
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's get wonderful That's the one that's just berries. down the street for me. <laughs> The mulberries are great. Uh, My partner in Java, where there's no longer silk being raised, um, except now our project says that used to be raised. That's why we had mulberries there. And I used to climb the trees every day
0: after school and eat the mulberries. And that's why I'm so strong and healthy. (laughs) So you mentioned really briefly before about DDT. So I know that's one of the challenges that that silk caterpillars are facing now. Can you talk about that and other challenges for them? Yes, the DDT
1: is not used much anymore, but the biggest problem we have had in the United States and other countries has been the bacillus thuringiensis gene splice of corn, cotton, soybeans, and in China, rice. The This bacillus creates a toxin that is in the pollen, and the pollen is airborne, yeah. going up to five miles. So it has been functionally impossible to raise silk in the
0: United States in the summer for 12 yeah. years. So... Uh- taking a step back what we're talking about is crops of soybean and corn and in asia rice that are genetically modified to be less appealing to the bugs that are their natural predators so like that no, that was kill. the original point but the problem is this byproduct of the pollen being deadly to silk caterpillars yes the this the plants are designed
1: to kill any lepidoptera larvae yeah. that might Bunch chump, jumped on them now the pollen of course is considered to be benign to people but unfortunately I know very well that when my silkworms start dying in the summer of this pollen and I get sick with excuse me, stingy, slimy, smelly explosive poop oh, that basically, sucks. basically the BT is digesting my gut Yeah. just as it digests their gut and in the case of the caterpillar, it kills them. In the case of me, it just makes me very sick.
0: Yeah, because we're a substantially larger and more complex creature than the than the silk caterpillars, so they just can't they can't overcome the struggles that it's causing for their bodies. Right. So you they they just turn to goo. They turn to brown slime. Yes, it's pretty oh, disgusting. That's really really sad. So because of the prevalence of these crops, is that limiting the? Sp- the places where you can raise silkworms or silk caterpillars excuse me
1: well a spring raising is possible before the pollen comes out okay and a fall raising is possible after the pollen is okay. no longer coming because yeah. the cycle of those
0: plants is such that the pollen comes out um july usually mm-hmm. so you could get a, a silk crop early in a silk crop late but you'd miss a whole probably a whole another silk crop in the, in the middle but you'd need to be aware of of like when those were pollinating in your area or whether they're around that sort of thing.
1: Yes, yeah, so fortunately, the company doing the gene splicing, Syngenta mm-hmm. was bought out by China 2 years ago and Monsanto's just been bought out by Bayer. And uh, doing this, the gene splice into the individual uh, corn seed, it's a lot of money and a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Those wild uh, caterpillars have basically become immune, and so oh. it's moot. And it's my belief, I have had no problem for two years, it is my belief that the, the corn is no longer being GMO'd in this way in this country
0: at this time. Okay, okay. so that's, that's a good step in the right direction. Yes,
1: and it also points out that urban raising of silk is
0: very viable. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it, as long as you have access to mulberry, it doesn't take up a ton of space either. Correct. So, you know, given one mulberry tree or a couple of mulberry trees, depending on your on your production level, you could raise them in your backyard, even if you've got a relatively small backyard.
1: <laughs> oh, you can, if they're mulberry street trees, you have a neighbor with one in his mm-hmm. front yard, yeah, you, you don't need bring them on street. Yeah. And I have a, a little rack set up that uses a space of two foot by three foot by six foot wide, mm-hmm. uh, three layers of boxes on shelves. Mm-hmm. It's not a big space, and I raise crops up to a thousand at a time and several sequentially over the summer.
0: That's great. So if anybody wants to start raising silk caterpillars, you sell eggs. Yes, I do. Okay, so if you're, if you're looking to get into it or you want to try that out and you have access to Mulberry, um, it's aurorasilk.com, A-U-R-O-R-A-S-I-L-K.com. And there's a tab there for silkworms. And you can either buy cocoons if you just want to spin your own and reel them by hand and all that stuff. Or you can, you can get in there and get eggs and start your own crop. It yeah. is a most wonderful education for children. True. Yeah, it should be in every
1: school. First and second graders. I uh, New York City school
0: system did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Portland school system did it. It's really quite wonderful. Well, it's a hands-on, step-by-step of the life cycle. Children learn
1: compassion. Yeah. Uh, for all living creatures, by falling in love with these caterpillars who love to crawl on you because you're warm, <laughs> and to watch to watch the whole cycle and the moths come out who also love to crawl on you, yeah. <laughs> they, they just like it. I mean, people and and silk caterpillars have been getting along for a long time, at least yeah. five thousand years.
0: Yeah. It's they're integral to our history. And part of what I really like about this, um, you know, going like back to nature sort of movement or like people, you know, raising like sustainable crops and like community supported agriculture, things like that, is that it's taking us back to our origins in a way that I think is very healthy because, you know, avoiding all the corporate bullshit and, you know, (laughs) and like knowing knowing where you're where your fiber and where your food and where all of those things come from is empowering. And the
1: important thing is that wearing silk is good for you. It is. There are electrical properties that silk has that make it energy conserving to the body. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, very breathable and absorbing yeah. of, of uh, sweat and stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's very warm. Yep. People think of thin silk to wear in hot days, but warm, fluffy silk like you would spin from the cocoons It's very, very warm, warmer than wool. Believe me, I lived 10 years in Douglas County, Oregon, and Mm -hmm. I heard from the loggers, we wear silk liners inside our wool socks. Yeah. We used to wear silk underwear when we could get it. Yeah. So so bringing back the silk, the real silk, true silk, or as it's commonly called now, raw silk. Yeah. But natural silk yeah it is also bioabsorbable so it is very important that the medical industry return to using silk sutures
0: yeah because your body can just absorb them and break them down themselves you don't have to have anything you know toxic and nylon and plastic in your body that gets has to get pulled out later
1: yeah nylon nylon suturing is great for the people who are running the hospitals and doing the operations because they get paid twice but yeah. it's not good for the person And silk sutures are available And I myself have developed a way to uh, naturally dye Fine silk on tubes
0: mm-hmm. So
1: that it can be immediately wound into these uh, suturing situations oh, nice. it, it, is, it is very important But consumers are going to have to ask for this If you are going yeah. into an operation Insist that silk suturing be used Ask your doctor
0: yeah, you advocate have right. for
1: yourself, for sure. And it is available. Uh, silk sutures are still being produced in Italy.
0: Yeah. So why do they need to be dyed? Uh, they're dyed so the doctor can see them. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. But I thought I'd double check. Because <laughs> <laughs> silk, when it's wet, becomes translucent. Yeah, yeah. And they need to, the way that, if you've ever watched suturing videos for everyone out there, um, you know, they they tie back on you know there's there's different like stitches they're different than like sewing stitches or embroidery stitches suture stitches are different um, and they need to be able to see them (laughs) yeah uh so can you tell me a little bit about your work in java well um
1: i've been trying to create a piece of silk farm for 20 years and i've tried this place and i've tried that place and i've Mm -hmm. tried this other place and for whatever reasons um they have not worked out yeah. And um, not having anything to do with silk, uh, usually having to do with,
0: with local political and yes, yeah. other situations. Yeah. Yes. It's not the silk's fault. <laughs> <laughs> or the people. Yeah. People are very enthusiastic to do this kind of work. Yeah. Well, it's a an industry that could help them support their families and their communities that requires relatively little uh you know space it's not like it's you know strip farming like they could they could grow them in in the natural habitat without having to like clear land so like it's it would be beneficial for the people mulberry
1: trees are traditionally planted around the edges of fields and along the edges of roads and along the edges of ditches mm-hmm. very very few uh, cultures have planted plantations of mulberry trees yeah so it
0: is taken up waste space yeah, and producing all this benefit. So there's a question that I ask everyone in season 2 if you could be reincarnated as any animal, what animal would you be?
1: On that, I'm going with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> I, I am coming back.
0: <laughs> okay, well thank you Cheryl. This has been great. I really hope
1: that people will just try it. Yeah. Just yeah just have fun just do it as a fun project it's really
0: beautiful be sure to check out aurora silk's products including peace silk cocoons silk fabrics and silkworm eggs at aurorasilk.com cheryl also offers free consulting via telephone on monday and friday afternoons at 503-286-4149 and that's a u.s phone number now we'll talk with Sarah Lamb, who literally wrote the book on spinning silk. Welcome to Sarah Lamb, spinner, dyer, and weaver, and we're going to talk to Sarah about silk today. Hey, Sarah. Good morning. Thanks. So you have written some publications that um, specifically the practical spinner's guide to silk. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about spinning silk in general?
2: Oh, sure. It's a wonderful fiber to spin. Um, We, as spinners, um, have a lot of varieties of silk available to us now. But Mm -hmm. when I started spinning silk, it was around 1980, and um, I bought a Tussa brick, which is um, actually, it was a half brick, so it was only about two and a half ounces And uh, went home, and in those days there was no Internet. There was barely um, any publications. But we did have a spinners group. I belonged to the, at the time, the Sacramento Weavers Guild. And uh, there was a spinners group, so people were helpful and, um, you know, encouraging. So Mm -hmm. I sat down and spun up that particular tussa. It was, um, like I said, two, two and a half ounces or so. So I split it into thirds and spun um, three different bobbins, plied two of them together, and then I set up my loom and wove a scarf with that. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a little disappointed in the results. It's a beautiful scarf. It you know, serves its purpose. It's drapes. It's, yeah. it's um, pretty. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. But I was imagining a shiny silk fabric, Uh, and it was, um, I'd chosen the wrong kind of silk. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I just had not spun it tight enough so that it was a little fuzzy, Uh, and the weave structure um, was a broken twill, Mm -hmm. and so it deflected light rather than, you know, reflecting light. Yeah. And so, you know, it took me a while to figure out how to spin the fabric I wanted to get. And as a weaver, I was a weaver before I was a spinner. Um, I was working with um, the idea that I could spin something that looks like silk cloth we buy, which is real silk,
0: yeah. not spun. Yeah.
2: So as I spun tighter and tighter and got the set closer and closer and also just um, stuck to plain weave. Mm-hmm. Um, I got real close. In fact, I'm real happy with the fabric that I get now. That's awesome. So,
0: so let's talk a little bit about this, the terms. Reeled silk is silk that's unwound directly from the cocoon, correct? Yes. And yes. then when you're talking about spun silk, it's it's more like bits and pieces, more like a roving, right? Right. It's a silk top and it's uh, the waist Product, byproduct from the reeling process. Yeah, so the little bits that are left over.
2: Yeah, it's not raised, uh, silk is not raised for spinners, it's raised for reelers, and Mm -hmm. that's the highest quality. Um, So we get, um, they throw the sort of leftover cocoon bit into a big machine, and it gets all torn up and then realigned as would wool into a top. Yeah,
0: with so combed, combed, like we've talked on the right. podcast before about combing versus you know, versus carding, so right. combed for sure. So it's all fibers aligned and shiny.
2: Yes, exactly. So the difference though is um, the fibers uh, are different from wool top in that uh, they, the staple length varies within the top. Okay. So as you're holding the top and as it's feeding out, um, one fiber might be two inches long, and the next one might be six. Yeah. So you have to deal with the um, varied staple lengths. That makes sense. So that would make it a little bit trickier. It, it is tricky, and it's one of the reasons I started by um, one of my teachers was Celia Quinn, and she spun silk on over the fold over mm-hmm. your finger. Yeah. And that makes it much easier to manage that two different staple lengths. Yeah. And uh, feed on, and it's it's um, makes it. Silk, of course, um, I compare it more often to cotton rather than wool because yeah. it has no scales, it has yeah. no lanolin. It's very slick, and it needs twist to hold it together. Yeah, um, it doesn't have any crimp or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So um, the only thing that holds silk together is twist, and so you need a lot of it. Yeah, or rather, that is my opinion. There are other <laughs> opinions.
0: <laughs> well, and so with reeled silk, because it's you know really really long fibers, you could have less twist than you would with spun silk. Right. Okay. Yes.
2: In fact, there's untwisted. I mean, the filaments just yeah. lay next to each other.
0: Yeah. And that's what makes it so shiny and so reflective sense. of light. Yeah. So um, going back to what you said about a brick, how, what is uh-huh. a brick of silk? Oh, uh, one of the parts of the process, uh, originally, I'm not sure that
2: they do this all that much anymore, um, in China uh, where the silk is prepared, mm-hmm. is the cocoons are thrown into what looks like a wool picker, a big machine that pulls them all apart. Okay. And then the fibers feed from that up through um, a series of uh, card- carding cloth. It looks like carding cloth, but it's slightly different. Yeah. And gradually, um, the f- longest fibers are pulled out first, and then gradually shorter and shorter fibers. And so they're graded based on the length of the staple. Okay. A um, grade versus. Um, I think it goes down to F, but I've only seen okay. C myself.
0: And F looks- would be would be shorter
2: very short yeah. and very cottony looking okay um, yeah doesn't have much luster looks really dull yeah so um that uh, machine then produces a top and um i you know i don't know why the bricks um, were made but instead of a a bump like they would do with wool yeah. they fold it into this nice little compact um brick they
0: it, okay. it looks
2: like a brick it's square it's um, the ends are tucked in. Once you untuck it, you can't really get it back.
0: Yeah, so, so it's so it's basically, it's just folded into a square shape. Yes. Okay. And But it's right off of that machine, yeah. so it's wide. It's okay. like a uh, foot wide. Yeah, yeah.
2: When you un- unfurl the whole thing. And what they do then, uh, industrially, is take those bricks and turn them into top that's more, um, you know, that narrows down to... Uh, the size that a mechanical yeah. spinner would need.
0: I wonder if it's because of shipping. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it takes up less space to be rectangular it's and stackable.
2: Yeah, it certainly would be compact. But I don't know how much shipping was involved originally. Maybe yeah. you know, back and forth from Japan to China to India. I have no idea. Yeah. Because nowadays, well, Silk Road. Least,
0: you know, packeting camels.
2: Yeah, and most, <laughs> uh, most production was in the east. So yeah. if, if it, we we got any silk at all most production not all.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> what kind of, you know, what kind of structure do you need to be looking for if you're spinning silk? Uh, so spinning silk, generally I imagine you're probably if people if hand spinners are doing this, they're probably doing it with with uh, you know, spun silk rather than than like oh, reeled. right, So right. So you said that your teacher taught from the fold? Well, yes. Um, Celia spun from the fold. Okay. And
2: that made it easy for me. I had tried to spin from the end of the preparation. Yeah. And um, that tends to make the fibers that are longest pull out
0: and you end up
2: with this mass in your hand.
0: Yeah, because, because when you're spinning from the end... Um, When you're spinning wool, I know that, like, the the scales and the crimp on the wool grab other fibers and pull them into your drafting, but that wouldn't happen with silk because it's slick.
2: And um, you can very carefully spin from the end of the top and go back and forth over the edge of the top. Yeah. But um, I'm spinning for fabric. I need miles and miles of yarn. And that's a very slow process. Yeah. So I've um, learned to spin from the t- a fold, and it uh, works perfectly. And I get fabric that I like. So um, I and see more no consistently, than
0: yarn. It. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what about silk hankies? What are they? Oh, they are simply a cocoon that's been wetted um, and then
2: stretched over a frame. There's hankies and bells. There's all okay. kinds of shapes. So and they're they're essentially reeled silk. Well, no, they're stretched out one layer, and then they, they do layer after layer after layer. So a hanky might have, I don't know, 30, 50 cocoons okay. piled on top of each other. And you can spin them easily by unpiling them, by taking one cocoon at a time okay. and, and stretching it out from the corner. Yeah. Um, but if you try to spin the whole mass, it's um, very very sticky and holds together. Okay. It's the kind of silk where people say it hurts their hands or oh. it sticks on every um,
0: hangnail or callus. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh,
2: harder to draft.
0: So is so, it un- and- It's unwound. Like the, each reel is unwound though. So it's. No, it's it's just stretched out. Oh, okay, got it. Okay, so they just literally take a single cocoon and just pull it and pull it and pull it and pull it. So it's the whole Mm -hmm. thing just spread across a square or whatever the shape is. Right, Interesting.
2: And originally um, it was used for uh, wadding or um, like batting in clothing to keep people warm. Yeah. And so secondary cocoons, anything that had a hole in it that couldn't be reeled, um, waste cocoons, would be yeah. made into um, hankies. Interesting. But, um, it makes a really, really nice uh, textured yarn, and yeah. uh, nice for weft, and again, a woman who, uh, one of my many teachers, um, Celia Quinn made a blouse out of um, silk caps in, oh, I, I wanna say the mid, late 80s, mm-hmm. and it was warp and weft, all handspun silk cocoons. Oh, that's cool. It was a monumental effort yeah. and beautiful. <laughs>
0: That sounds fabulous. So the silk hankies would be made with with you know like second grade cocoons. Yeah. So do, are you also dyeing the silk? Like so starting yeah. with with you know natural silk and then and then dyeing yeah. it yourself.
2: Yes, I spin miles and miles of plain white
0: yarn. <laughs> okay, and so you generally dye it. So you're dyeing it after rather mm-hmm. than dyeing it before you yes. before you spin it.
2: Um I do tend to buy, you know, all of the indie dyers these days. There's some beautiful silks out there, and yeah. I do tend to buy four ounces or two ounces every now and then of dyed silks and then incorporate them into what I'm doing or yeah. dye something to go with it. Yeah. But um, some of my original, well, not original, early pieces in the 90s, um, I was buying dyed bricks from um, a woman in uh, Oregon and mm-hmm. then matching those colors with the painted warps that I used with Oh, that's it.
0: fun. Well, thanks for talking to me, Sarah. You're welcome. Been a, it's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. See you too. You can find Sarah Lamb on Facebook and her site, saralamb.com. That's S A R A, no H L A M B.com. She's also Lamb Spin on Ravelry. I've linked her books and DVDs in the show notes. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I really love going into a dive on the life cycle of silk caterpillars, and I've got some really great resources for you in the show notes. You can follow me in all my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram as Mim Knits. Thank you forever and ever to the patrons who keep this podcast paid for. I had a local knitter hand me $20 at the guild meeting to say thanks for the podcast, and it was wonderful. <laughs> The address for the Patreon, if you want to get some cool rewards and bonus content, along with my eternal devotion, is patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. That's M-I-R-I-A-M-F-E-L-T-O-N. And actually, I posted a longer excerpt from my conversation with Sarah Lamb on there just the other day. And I've just started streaming live from my studio via Twitch. So it's twitch.tv slash mimismaking. So you can check that out. Also link in the show notes. If you can't support the podcast with cold hard cash, you can rate and review in iTunes or share the podcast with your fiber-loving friends. Spreading the word of yarn stories makes a huge difference. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook. Search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories. Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back in two weeks talking with the lovely Jeanette Sloan about diversity in knitting. Hey babe.
2: Hi. What you doing in the closet?